This is Passing for Normal, conversations with authors, artists, activists, and awakeners about how they are seeding change in the world. I'm Sharon Weil, author of Donnie and Ursula Save the World, the funniest book about love, sex, and GMO seeds you'll ever read. But mostly, it's about everyday courage and what it takes to get there in your own personal, even unconventional way. So join us for fun and insightful discussion with some very inspirational people about how to turn purpose and passion into action, while at the same time, passing for normal. Hello and welcome to Blog Talk Radio. Today we are speaking with Robert Littman. For the last 25 years, Robert Littman has guided clients and students in the use of movement, breath, and sound as a tool for personal growth, restoring healthy breathing rhythms, structural alignment, and efficient body mechanics. He teaches worldwide. He founded The Breathable Body in 2003 and is on the Faculty of Continuum Movement and has made many contributions to that work, particularly in the areas of science, neuroanatomy, and cellular biology. Robert is an organizing member and trainer of the Buteco Breathing Technique, helping retrain the breath and breathing of people with asthma, anxiety, allergies, panic attacks, sleep apnea, digestive disorders, fibromyalgia, many, many other conditions. He has taught the Buteco Breathing Method to visiting doctors for Dr. Andrew Weil at the University of Arizona School of Integrative Medicine. His resume of somatic practices goes on and on. I find Robert to be one of the most articulate translators of understanding the functions and movement of breath in the body and its sacred nature and all that affects and implies. Plus, he's very handsome and extremely charismatic. Welcome, Robert. Good morning, Sharon. Thank you. Good morning. How are you breathing this morning? Uh, pretty well, thank you. It's a nice California day. It's a beautiful California day. So, um, so we're talking about breath. And honestly, I find that most people don't even pay attention to their breath, that we assume that it's something that... Uh, is sort of done for us, um, although many of us could use to be paying much more attention to our breath. Can you talk to us a little bit about breath? Well, that's true. Um, most people do not pay attention to breathing. Most people pay attention to breathing when it's actually not working well, when people find that they are short of breath or have one of those conditions that you mentioned earlier. But the truth is that breath is actually a uh, the window to uh, your health. And when paid more attention to and tracking the rhythm and noticing whether you're breathing quickly or whether you're breathing in a very relaxed way, I can tell you a little bit about the state of your nervous system at any given time. You're busy going about your day and you're busy and you may not be tracking that, but you come home and you sit down and you spend about two or three minutes just noticing it. Wow, I've really been busy today. Look, my breath is really running pretty quickly. And if I can take a moment to relax it, then I will relax as well. If I don't notice that, then I may just keep at a pace that will, by the end of the day, could exhaust me. So I think it's important every once in a while to be checking into your breathing and letting it tell you, how am I doing right now? Well, you talk about breath as being the primary nourishment for the body and for our lives. Can yes. You tell me more about much, that. Yeah. Sure, very much so. There's a sort of a rule of threes. Uh, you can go three minutes 
without breath, uh, three days without water, and three weeks without food, without those nourishments, you cannot survive. So we can see just by the timing of that, it is one of the most essential nutrients that we take in. And that nutrient that we take in is oxygen, and you know, we all know that, of course, but the final um, end point of oxygen in our body is deep inside our cells, inside the mitochondria, as a constituent for the energy molecule that powers all, all our metabolic and physical activities. So it is the most important thing to um, stem fatigue when we are delivering oxygen in a, most, a very efficient way, then we are able to make more energy and feel less fatigued by the end of the day. And so it's very important about how we breathe and how we use our breath. And I know you may ask me this question, but I'll say it now. The uh, mouth is for eating and the nose is for breathing. And we <laughs> breathe through our mouth as often as we eat through our nose. It's a little funny little saying, but it helps you remember. And that's the function of the nose, and that's what really helps the delivery of oxygen be much more efficient, is using our nose for breathing and not our mouth. And so why would it be a problem if we, if we breathe through our mouth? Well, there are a couple of things. I like to talk about the nose as being a guardian of the lungs. And three of the most important ways that it guards the lungs so that the air that comes into the lungs is conditioned in a way that the lungs can receive it openly is that it regulates the temperature of the air. If it's cold outside, it'll warm the air before it goes to the lungs. And if it's very hot outside, it'll cool the air down. The nose is also, we know, especially when we're sick, it has a lot of moisture in it. It has mucous membranes. And so if you're in a dry climate, that moisture in the mucous membranes will add moisture to the air so the lungs are receiving moist air rather than dry air, which can be irritating to the lungs. And one of the most other important uh, features is that the nose helps filter, so it takes particulates out of the air and it uh, takes bacteria out of the air. The nose also has the ability to make antibacterial molecules, so it um, sterilizes the air from bacteria. When you breathe through the mouth, none of that can take place. You get hot air, cold air, unfiltered air, dry air, and the lungs are uh, reactive to those kinds of conditions. The other thing that's most important is that breathing through the mouth uh, triggers a, a sort of an anxiety, a fight or flight. It causes the system to go on alerts. And the example that I always use is that, you know, if you were standing in your living room and a barrel came to the door, you'd probably take a big gasp of air. And immediately your system would be on alert. You'd be very focused on the bear. Your heart would speed up. A lot of um, sugar would go to your muscles. So you could be ready to fight or flight. And that, that mechanism in the body is triggered anytime we use our mouth for breathing. And when you use your nose for breathing, it actually works the opposite way. It helps settle the nervous system down and keep you in more in a relaxed state. And so is there a problem with being in a fight or flight state or being in it constantly? Well, yeah, in the long run it is because it speeds the heart up. It, uh, shows, it slows down digestion. Just imagine if you were in a fight or flight uh, situation, anything in the body that is not essential in that moment, like digestion, like the immune system, those systems turn off so that you have the energy available for your muscles. Um, so in the long term, if you are in fight or flight consistently, then your immune system is weakened and you're more susceptible to colds and other uh, diseases, as well as poor digestion. 
And like I said, you're not delivering oxygen uh, as efficiently. You're moving it through pretty quickly, so the body is going to get fatigued and just wear out over time. It's just a, a constant state of alert is not what the body is meant to be in. It's a fight or flight. And when originally developed as an evolutionary development in uh, in mammals, was meant to be kind of a short-lived thing. You either get away from what's attacking you, or you are able to fight and kill what's attacking you, and that event probably doesn't last more than five minutes. But a constant state of it is not what's meant for that system to be in and, and on alert all the time. It produces way too many stress hormones in the body, and those can be really debilitating. So are you saying that I could change my entire health picture just by shutting my mouth? <laughs> That's a funny way of saying that, for sure. I've been asked to but, do that many times. <laughs> yes, I often get that comment in class, oh, I can't wait to tell my wife, or I can't wait to tell my husband about this. Um, yeah, yes, it's not so much about, it is about, one of the first ways to be able to do that, actually, is to start to bring your attention to when do I use my mouth through breathing, and is it necessary in those moments? Some of the common places that people do that is when they're brushing their teeth, when they're taking a shower, when they're putting food in their mouth, and when they're taking a breath in between talking. So becoming aware, and often in class I say, why don't you just make a list of places that you notice you do that, and then over time see if you can start to change those habits. And you'll notice that you actually begin to do change those habits, and you start to notice, well, I feel more relaxed than actually the things that I felt I had to do in a real big hurry, I actually can still get them done, but I do them more in a relaxed way and actually in a more efficient way because my mind has a more attention on what I'm doing rather than when I'm in fight or flight and more alert. It's very narrow. It's that you can't focus on anything except what's right in front of you. So you have a more of a range of being able to pay attention to a wider, a wider, wider variety of things. So... Um what does fear do to the breath? Well, fear to, to, to the breath is what we're speaking about in terms of fight or flight. It speeds it up. It, it, it makes it uh, it's sort of almost like a panting, you know, you're, uh, like a panting rhythm where it's just very quick and I can't say more than that, just about a panting rhythm. And so um, it, the effects on the body when your body is in fear is the same as when you're in fight or flight. You shut down the digestion shutdown of uh, the immune system and an elevation of those activities that you would need for your survival. And what happens to the breath when you're in love or when you're drawn or attracted to someone or something? Well, just the way you say it makes me want to slow right down and uh, feel like I'm in love. Basically, it slows down. You can feel more of the heat in your breath. And actually, one of the things that comes back comes uh, it becomes more available to you is a softening of the belly when you're in love. The visceral, the visceral body, the belly, the stomach, they have their own nervous system in them, and when you're on fight or flight, they're much tighter. And when things are safe and you feel in love, your whole stomach and intestines, all of that begins to relax, and you feel much softer inside of yourself. Well, I'm asking you these questions in particular because you know uh, in the book that I've written, Donnie and Ursula Save the World, the main characters, Donnie and Ursula, um, are dealing with situations that put them in fear, put them up against their fear, 
and it is their love and it is their arrows that actually allows them to move through their fears. And so I'm just looking at it as we're talking in terms of breath. I've really never looked at character before um, in relationship to how do the characters breathe, but um, I was just curious about that. Well, it was interesting in reading the book. Um, I just what struck me by contrast is when you were writing about Shira and Sean, um, how how relaxed they were. It was Sean, wasn't it? Um, yes. How 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 I, when reading them, was very relaxed in my breathing and really intrigued by that and feeling the, the modeling of that kind of behavior. And yet, in the times when things were more anxious between Donna, Donnie and Ursula, I could feel the tension in my own body. So it was kind of interesting to draw that contrast. So it was the breathing patterns in the reader were affected by what was happening in the book. Right. You've said to me before that breathing is actually a communication, that we mm-hmm. actually do pick up from another person how they're breathing, the pattern of their breathing, and maybe it affects our breathing or uh, it, it, uh, we form an opinion about that person based on how they're breathing. Are they holding their breath? Are they relaxed in their breath? Um, can you talk about that some more? Yeah, you've, you've said it actually very well. Um, one of the things that... That's um, only because you said it to me. That's what I'm saying. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. You know, there's one thing. I read in a science magazine just the other day, there's some doctors and scientists are developing this breath analysis where they're able to take a breath analysis, sort of like they do for alcohol, but a little much more detailed, where the molecules that are coming out in our breathing and our exhale are actually telling uh, what is going on in the body. So, that, you know, if you take a blood test, you're going to be able to take a breath test to be able to diagnose certain diseases. So that speaks to it really clearly right there. Uh, so there's a communication about what's going on in our metabolic activity but you're right. If you know, some, we all know that if we're next to somebody who's really anxious and they're breathing in a very fast and erratic way, it kind of upsets us and makes us anxious. And yet, if we're breathing with somebody who's relaxed and calm, we tend to get that communication. Candace Pert wrote a lot about it in the molecules of emotions, how we are receptive to each other's molecules, and the breathing is one of those ways that those molecules get transmitted. So we're very, we're very susceptible to what's carried in our breath. And I like to think of it actually as a global communication. We are all breathing off the same atmosphere. And mm-hmm. what comes out in our breath goes back into that atmosphere, and others are breathing those molecules back in. And so even in a, in a kind of indirect way that we're not even aware of, there's a communication worldwide that's going on in all, and the fact that we're all breathing in the same atmosphere. Yeah, you know, um, I don't think that you ever saw it, but I, um, I did a one-woman show called In the Same Breath where um, I was talking about that the um, largest component of uh, dust is dead skin cells. And throughout mm-hmm. this piece, I was talking about different characters. There was a character on the subway who was breathing in the dead skin cells of all the people that were on the subway. And there were other characters that were breathing in the skin cells of, that were breathing in the same breath of the people that they were opposed to. And mm-hmm. were not able 
to recognize that it was that it was a shared subway car, that it was a shared world, right? And yet here we are, like you say, breathing the same atmosphere, breathing the same air, breathing skin cells. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good reason to breathe through your nose, there, Sharon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really? well, you know, there's also this. There's also this conversation that goes around that matter is neither created nor destroyed and that all creatures before in the past, their molecular constituents are still floating around in our atmosphere so that the, uh, wow. in any particular breath you may take in the molecules of Jesus or you may take in the molecules of Gandhi or Buddha or even uh, Genghis Khan, your worst you know, foe. So, you know, you never know what's coming in and going out. And so sometimes we're not even understanding how come we feel a particular way because there's also the science of that all molecules have memory and while atoms have memory of where they've been. So I often find of saying sometimes you have this very cosmic moment um, where everything just seems cosmic to you. And I wonder if we haven't taken a breath of some molecules that have been in the cosmos for millennium and all of a sudden they're just kind of their spirit of them is just all of a sudden ignited in your body and you have this moment it's a far-fetched idea but i don't think it's an impossible one it's very cool it's very cool to uh you know just let let myself travel in that in that thinking um because it's also uh you know it, it just speaks to to like you say, one global consciousness, one global environment, one global, one shared experience, right? Yeah, wasn't it Neil Young who said we are stardust? Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. he did. Yeah, I do think, I do have this idea as well that, you know, there's conflict all over the world and we see it on the Internet and we see it everywhere and we're, we have our feelings about it and our concerns about it. But I think even without that, I think there's a sort of an inner knowing that there's conflict and there's death and life going on all over the place because I think we I think we breathe it and it, there's mm. a sense of it through our breath. Mm. Well, so speaking of Neil Young, um, you know, in the '70s there was a phrase that was often spoken um, that the personal is the political, and um, we can't get more personal or more intimate than our breath. And so how does changing, how is changing your breath or changing the way you're breathing an act of social change or bring about social change or any change? Well, I think, I think a little bit it's about how we breathe, but I think it's also the attention that we give to the value of our breathing, recognizing that we need clean air to survive, and really, and recognizing that I can tell the difference when I go to the beach or I go to the mountains and I come back to a city and that my body has an easier time assimilating my breathing in a cleaner environment so that I can I take a personal responsibility. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I, I can't breathe in the city and I live in a city, isn't it my responsibility to actually speak up to the fact that I can't breathe here? Is this what we want for our society, to create environments that we cannot breathe in? Are we that unconscious that we can continue to allow that to take place? And so I think that becomes the political act of breathing. And I think that we see it more and more. There are more breathing disorders now on the planet than ever before, stress-related, 
more people and who are holding their breath during the day because they can't both bear the air or bear the stresses. Holding your breath is one of the ways that we stop the movement and stop activity. And this pattern of holding uh, becomes built into the system so people go to sleep at night and that pattern repeats itself and it is the setting in of some sleep apnea. We see more sleep apnea now, which is the holding breath. We see more childhood asthma. We see more adult asthma, more people dying from asthma. These are the people, and you could use that old analogy of the canary in the coal mine, these are the people who are letting us know that conditions are getting worse. We're not getting worse as a species. The conditions in which we live in are getting worse. And our bodies are telling us we're shutting down. We can't tolerate the atmosphere. So that becomes the political act, to speak up for the fact that we need clean air, we need clean water. Those are our essential nutrients. So uh, you're saying also that we learn how to endure our conditions, that the conditions around us are really not acceptable, but somehow we learn to endure the conditions. And, you know, uh, one thing I'm always aware of and uh, was reflected in my book is how people do somehow learn to accommodate a deteriorating situation bit by bit by bit. And, you know, what I'm hearing you say also is that we, you know, the the air is bad or the air is unbreathable, but somehow we start wearing a mask and we, we learn to accommodate or we take medication to endure a condition that really is, um, it's not right. Now, there are some really frightful, frightful conditions right now. And, you know, I talk about it in class and my lectures about if we, look, if we looked at a cellular model or even an animal model up the food chain, most animals know to move and cells know to move towards nourishment and away from poisons. And we have no choice. We are living in places that feel really poisoned to us and we feel frustrated because we can't get away. There's really no place to hide anymore. It's a global condition. And so I think a lot of the internal stress and internal frustration and anger we see on the streets, we don't even understand that it's coming from something outside of what we think it's coming out from. In childhood asthma, like for really little children, one of the ways that you can tell that an asthma attack is approaching is that their behavior becomes uh, irrational tantrum-like two or three days before they actually have the the asthma attack. So they're already feeling an irritation in their system that they cannot verbalize, and then they can't breathe. And I think we just go on enduring these irritations in our systems, can't breathe, but we just learn to endure and endure and endure. And it just keeps building the stress and frustration levels. So I agree with you there. So it would, in effect, be somewhat of a radical act to move towards nourishment in this day and age rather than to accommodate um, deteriorating conditions around us. Yeah, I mean, think about trees. I would would think about trees and think about the pleasure, if I could speak in those terms, of what it would feel like to have the breeze, you know, move move their leaves. And really, the act of breathing should be one of great pleasure. I have been in some very clean atmospheres. I actually live in one outside on an island in Washington State. 
and the air is so clean that I just like my lungs open up for it and rejoice in the pleasure of taking a breath. That should be the condition. So that we're not even not aware of our breathing, but when we do become aware of it, is because we enjoy the pleasure of it. So moving mm-hmm. towards nourishment and pleasure is a radical act. <laughs> yeah, it is a radical act. Um, and one so worth, so worth following. Yeah, one of the things, you know, excuse me, Sharon, one of the things we don't realize is that like, in some of our organs, like the pancreas and the liver, those are not open to the outside. Our lungs are really the outside inside of us. It's a clear passageway mm. from the mm. outside in. So whatever you see in the outside environment is what's going on in the inside environment because mm-hmm. it is the outside mm-hmm. in. And, you know, like I said, going back to the nose breathing, the best chance we do have is to be adaptable and let our biological organism use the apparatus that it's meant to use and perhaps create ways of being more effective in purifying the air. I saw a picture the other day in China with uh, a city that they moved the factories to when they had the Olympics in Beijing, so the air was a cleaner in Beijing. And I don't think you can see 10 feet in front of you in that city because the pollution is horrific. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. No care no care for humans in that regard. Yeah. So, Robert, I think it's a little bit obvious, but I'm going to ask you the question, what is the change in the world you would like to see and what are you doing towards bringing that change about? I'd like to see clean air, plain and simple. And I'd like to see people rise up and be able to speak for that. Um, I teach classes, and I teach private work, I work on Skype, and one of my dreams has been to um, offer just a real basic two-hour breathing class that would reach millions of people at one time. And I, you know, I was in a movie theater once, and I saw, you know, come to see the opera for $20, and instead of a movie, you see the opera. And I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to produce a two-hour uh, video on how to take care of your breathing and how to best optimize your health through breathing and have it play in movie theaters and have people to be able to go to a class for two hours for under $20 and get a lifetime's worth of help and be able to broadcast that everywhere. I mean, that's just one idea. I'm sure now, this was a few years ago now with the media, the way it is is probably even more effective ways. But I think this information is available and very simple and utilitarian terms and people could benefit greatly. I know because I give two-hour lectures all the time that people walk away and say that's the most valuable information I've ever received two hours. So it's just want to spread it worldwide. That's right because changing the way you breathe will change and affect every other aspect of your life. That's right. I've often worked with people who are overweight and people tend to overbreathe. There's a conversation that we cannot have, get enough air. It has to do a little bit with the quality. It has to do a little bit with how you utilize your respiratory system. But people who learned how to breathe in a way that actually nourished them and they weren't overbreathing or underbreathing or holding their breath also began to understand, wow, I may be eating too much as well. And so and I, I can't say it would happen for everybody. But weight changes also happen when the reason, when that first form of nourishment becomes more obvious on how to utilize it in its most best way. That's right. And if I'm not 
meeting the world in a state of shallow breath, which produces anxiety. I can approach any number of situations with more courage, with more bravery. That isn't even something I have to think about or conjure up. It's just available because I'm more available. Yeah? Exactly. Um, You know, we talk so much about external stress, but when the body is not nourished, that's an internal stress. And when the body is internally stressed, it is less available to manage the external stresses. And we do some things that are very profound that stress us, that make it real challenging in the stress world. The three most common places for people to feel anxiety and panic are watching TV, driving a car, and talking on a cell phone. And those are, three, those are the three most common activities in the United States. And you can see why it is for TV is because the images move so quickly, our breath is trying to keep up with the movement of the images. And it's the same thing on the highway and, you know, the fear of accidents. And in talking, you know, it is on a cell phone. You never know when one person finishes and another person starts. So there's this disorganization of the breathing mm-hmm. pattern based on the talking. And so learning how to speak and take a breath in through your mouth when you feel like you're running through, excuse me, oh, my gosh, I said that, breathing in through your nose when you run out of air, like I'm going to say right here, I'm running out of air. I stop for a moment and take a breath in through my nose. I re-nourish myself on every breath. And that's a much better way than just kind of trying to keep panting and talking and trying to speak mm-hmm. over another person and just you know run out of the mouth, so to speak. This is all fascinating. And I know we could keep talking about this for a very long time. And in fact, we do. Um, but right now, um, our show is coming to a close. So I want to be sure that you let people know how they can find you, how they can get in touch with you. Yeah, the easiest way is I have a website, like most everybody else, and it's called TheBreathableBody.com. So you can either Google my name, Robert Littman, or just type in TheBreathableBody.com, and my website will come up, and it will give you contact information and how to get a hold of me and where where I am and what classes I am teaching currently. That's incredible, and I, I really encourage everyone to get in touch with Robert because you are such an amazing resource and have put together such a global understanding of the body and the breath and movement and the world. I hope you noticed that I have been nose breathing the entire time during our interview. Good for you, Sharon. And the last little piece, because you mentioned this word, that really the act of breathing is a sacred act. You know, it brings, it, it's, the, it's the animating force that gives our body the, 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 the nourishment to be alive. So honoring it as sacred is another way to uh, enhance our, our awareness about it. It is a sacred act. It is a sacred act. And you are absolutely wonderful, and I thank you so much for being in this conversation with me and being able to share it with those who are um, also listening to Passing for Normal. Thank you for Passing for Normal. Sharon, thank you very much for the opportunity. This has been Passing for Normal, conversations about seeding change in the world. To find out more about author Sharon Weil, go to PassingForNormal.com. That's Passing, numeral 4, Normal.com. Donnie and Ursula Save the World is available in paperback, Kindle, and soon to be an audiobook at DonnieAndUrsula.com. So go out and do something brave today. 
am earth and I thank you.